This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Today, does smelling badly bode ill for your lifespan? A heart drug that might turn out to be the first of a revolutionary new family of antibiotics? When you were born, maybe a strong predictor of whether you go on to drug abuse and dependence? And according to research published this week in the Medical Journal of Australia, life expectancy rises in Australia may be stalling after stellar increases over the last 20 or 30 years. Australia has long been up at the top of the global league table of how long on average we live, outpacing the gains in life expectancy of other nations. But that position may be under threat. Tim Adair is one of the authors. Tim's in the University of Melbourne School of Population and Global Health. Welcome to The Health Report. Hello, Norman. So how much has life expectancy increased in Australia you know, over the last couple of decades of the 20th century now? Australia's life expectancy has increased by about five and a half years since 1990. Um, so that's quite a significant, significant increase. Is that the three months a year, year in, year out, that people have often caught? It's pretty close to it, yes. Yeah. So there's a, a long-held um, belief that um, life expectancy increases by about three months every calendar year. And that's, that's the record life expectancy in, in the world at any given time. And that's been going on for 100 to 150 years or so. So why has life expectancy increased over recent years? Uh, for Australia, it's generally driven by declines in the leading causes of death. So cardiovascular diseases such as ischemic heart disease and stroke and leading cancers such as lung cancer. So stopping smoking, better health, what's called secondary prevention of heart disease, getting your blood pressure down, your cholesterol and so yeah. on. That's right. That's had a significant impact on um, increasing Australia's life expectancy, particularly over the last 20 or 30 years. And how much of an impact is smoking? cessation given that we're done. It's had a, yeah, it's had a significant impact um, beginning in the uh, 70s or so when smoking prevalence began to decline in Australia. Uh, it's had a quite a major impact on Australia's life expectancy gains over that period of time, particularly in the 80s and 90s. So it's mostly public health and a little bit of what GP and, and a bit of what GPs do to keep you healthy and keep your risk factors down. That's right. It's a, research has found it's a combination of prevention and, and treatment. There's a bit of a debate about the relative magnitude of each, but it's a combination of those. Um, but in, in particular, the behavioural risk factors are, um, are certainly important. So we've been in the top five. It moves around a little bit. Sometimes we're number two, sometimes we're four or five. It's a very narrow band. What have you noticed that made you write this paper? What we've found is that since about the mid-2000s, we, we used a starting point of 2003, but you could choose other starting points, uh, is that life expectancy growth in Australia um, has slowed to be behind the majority of other high-income countries. We used uh, about 27 countries, uh, high-income countries in our study, and we found that over the last uh, 15 years or so, that uh, Australian men are ranked 19th in the life expectancy growth in that period of time out of 27 countries, and women are ranked 22nd out of 27. So this is like, so we're still improving life expectancy. So this is not the life expectancy table which sees America down at number 17, 20, sometimes even number 35. This is the speed of increase that you're talking about. Yes, that's right. So that is slowing down, which does that mean that other, other, we're still going at three months a year, just others are going faster or what? No, Australia's life expectancy growth has slowed somewhat. Um, now, there may be a number of factors um, causing that. One is related to smoking that, uh, we just, that I mentioned before. So um, 
because of smoking prevalence in Australia has now fallen to a, a relatively low level. Uh, it's one of the lower levels amongst high income, high got, income So you're countries. saying that we've got most of the gains we're going to get? Pretty much. Um, and so, the when, other thing, so when Russia stops smoking, um, it's going to do better than us. It's going to do what we did in the 20th century. That's right. The potential gains to life expectancy um, for other countries from uh, reducing smoking are just greater than Australia. That's just a, a reality that we face. So there's obviously uh, scope for Australia to explore other health interventions to help improve life expectancy. Now, what you've said in this paper is that it's complicated, but there's a birth cohort effect. That the gains in life expectancy were by and large if I understood it correctly, in the baby boomers up to 1953 or so, and the post-1960s generation, that's where you're seeing the stalling. Yes, it was an interesting finding. So the baby boomers in Australia um, in particular have really enjoyed um, quite strong levels of life expectancy compared with their counterparts in other high-income countries. Um, And that generation have been ranked very highly um, over the past few decades. But what we've found is that Australians born from about the late 60s onwards don't quite enjoy that advantage. Now, it may be that... That's um, what they've always suspected anyway. Yeah, so it may be that that the advantages of reducing smoking that the Australian baby boomers enjoyed compared with their counterparts in other countries aren't being enjoyed by um, Australians um, and younger cohorts. But there could be also some other factors at play. Such as? It's a little bit difficult to identify at this stage. Uh, The... An issue with looking at um, mortality in younger adults is that it's not all that high in, in high-income countries. It's statistically a relatively rare event. Um, and so, so, it's so a combination. They, aren't, they aren't old enough to, to really know what's going on. Exactly. So, it, it, so are you seeing know. an effect of obesity? I think there's probably some effect of obesity. Uh, the level of cardiovascular disease mortality in younger adults in Australia is is relatively high. Um, but again, it's still early days in this the, the sort of mortality experience of this cohort, so to speak, for us to really get a clear picture of, of, the, um, of what may happen uh, with their life expectancy as they get older. Now, life expectancy is an average, and it usually is expressed as life expectancy at birth. Correct. But but we kind of max we've maxed out really haven't we at life expectancy at birth in Australia and we did some time ago that the life expectancy gains have been life expectancy at middle age which really started after World War Two we saw life expectancy at fifty spinning out and now it's life expectancy at seventy five are you looking at the wrong statistic? Not necessarily. Um, if we look at Japan, Japanese females for example who have consistently been the highest ranked or second highest ranked. Um, country in terms of life expectancy in the world, it's continued to increase at a very quick rate. So that suggests that, um, you know, there may be, I mean, there's going to be an ongoing debate about a biological limit. So we put some weight weight in our saddlebags for some reason. Yeah. And there are, there are probably reasons why Australia haven't, hasn't had the, uh, or has, is facing a slowing uh, increase in, in its life expectancy. And if we look at the risk factors that uh, are particularly problematic in Australia. Obesity is an obvious one that we, we need to look at. Uh, now, you're talking about risk factors. In 1993, going back a while, the World Bank, the World Health Organization, in fact, your boss, 
what Alan Lopez was heavily involved in this, wrote a report on development and health. And they concluded that the most important determinant of life expectancy in a country was not how much you spend on healthcare, was not even per capita income. It was actually the gap between rich and poor, how fair your society was. And so this is not some pinko Marxist-Leninist thing. This is the World Bank. Is that what's going on, that we're a less fair country and that that flows through to health and well-being? Um, it's a, that's an interesting question. Certainly in somewhere like America, that's, there's a strong argument that that is the case. There are significant uh, inequalities in access to healthcare and in mortality experience in, in the US. And there are actually a number of counties within America where life expectancy has declined over the last 30 years, which is a pretty astounding um, trend when you consider that life expectancy for 150 plus years has been increasing quite steadily. Um, in Australia, obviously, there are certain inequalities we face. So we know that Indigenous Australians live about eight or nine years lower on average um, than the rest of the country. Um, I think we probably need to do a bit more research as to the role of inequalities. Uh, there's always going to be inequalities in life expectancy in any country. So what but whether, sorry, go on. but but whether uh, those such inequalities are so bad that they uh, magnify, magnify the uh, risk of mortality of those um, who are particularly poor. So briefly, what should we do about this? Uh, look, there are a number of things and there's not one easy solution. But certainly addressing the risk factors such as high obesity, which are particularly pro problematic in Australia, is one approach. And um, we don't have a national obesity strategy, for example. And so taking... Um, some of the recommendations that have been made around reducing uh, advertising around junk food, um, more education campaigns on physical activity and improving diet. Um, there are a number of things that, that we can do to look to reduce obesity and maybe it's, it's like smoking a few decades ago. It's something we can um, make a number of investments in uh, to reduce. Tim, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Norman. Tim Adair is in the University of Melbourne School of Population and Global Health, and you're listening to RN's Health Report. I'm Norman Swan. A US study following over 2,000 people for 13 years has found that those with a poor sense of smell had up to a 46% increased risk of dying. It's been known for a while that one of the first signs of dementia or Parkinson's disease is a reduction in the ability to smell, possibly because the olfactory tissue at the top of your nose is an outgrowth of the brain. But is that the reason for higher death rates in the longer term associated with smelling badly? Hong-Lei Chen is Professor of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at Michigan State University. I spoke to him earlier. That's exactly the hypothesis, especially for Parkinson's, suggesting the disease actually start from the nose and the gut. People, including our own work, have shown that old adults who had a person's smell had a much higher risk for developing dementia and Parkinson's disease compared to people who had a good sense of smell. How do you test for smell? I mean, is this something that people complain of, they notice, or you've got to test for it? Actually, this is a really interesting question because unlike vision impairment or hearing impairment, most of those people who had a person's smell probably could not tell you that they have a person's smell. You have to test it. And the test itself, basically you have 12 or 16 different orderings and you ask study participant to smell 
And then you present four possible answers and ask them to choose the correct answer from these choices. And they got one point for each correct answer. You followed over 2,000 people over several years. And what did you find? We found for those people who had a poor sense of smell at the beginning of the follow-up, they were 46% more likely to die during the follow-up period, which is about 10 years. And we also found that dementia, Parkinson's, and weight loss only account for about 30% of the higher risk associated with person's smell, so leaving 70% unexplained. They died of cancer, heart disease, the usual things, just at a higher rate for their age. We are talking about the excess risk of death of total mortality for, for any in this context. For any cause. Yeah. And the weight loss is presumably because you lose interest in food? That's an interesting argument because there are some studies suggesting that people who had a processed smell maybe have a poor appetite for food. But there are some other studies suggesting that people who had a processed smell probably eat more because they have more appetite for calorie-intense food like junk food. But our hypothesis is a processed smell may lead to poor nutrition through whatever mechanisms. You found also that the people who had a poor sense of smell tended to be older, more likely to be a man, black, they had lower education levels, they were more likely to drink alcohol, smoke. Although you also had the contradictory finding is that people with excellent health seem to be most prone to this association of risk of death from poor smell. What's going on there? To begin with, we actually controlled for all the factors you just mentioned to balance them out in the analysis. But we did found that the association largely limited to people who initially reported a good to excellent health status. Our theory is that people who actually had a person's smell but think their health is good, probably at the time there's already something going on that's reflective in their sense of smell, but they have not recognized the underlying health issues going on. So our theory is the person's smell is an early and sensitive marker for their health to begin with. Why should that cause a poor sense of smell? That's exactly what we are trying to look for. But what are other potential explanations we do not know yet? Is this something that people should be worried about if you notice that your smell is going off? We have to put everything in context process of smell is pretty common among the old adults and actually increase with age. If you have a process of smell persistent and didn't go away, and you do not have a good explanation for this process of smell, you probably should talk to your doctor to figure out why this is happening. But we still have much, much more to learn. Probably you should not worry too much other than risk this issue to your physician. Hongli Chen is Professor of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at Michigan State University. There are many reasons why people start using alcohol and other drugs like cannabis, cocaine and amphetamines. And why some people go on to abuse drugs and become dependent is even more complex. But the focus has mainly been on individuals. It turns out, though, that an important variable may be the year you were born. 
Professor Louisa Degenhardt of the National Drug and Alcohol Research Centre at the University of New South Wales was the lead author of a global study to uncover this effect. Welcome back to the Health Report, Louisa. Thanks for having me, Norman. So what's the context here? So this was a, a study that was conducted in 25 countries coordinated by the World Health Organisation. Um, and the strength of this study was not only in the size of the group, we had over 90,000 people, but in the breadth of assessment, we asked people about a whole lot of things and including the age at which different events in their life occurred. So what that allowed us to and do... And these were mental health surveys, weren't they? Yes, so for a whole lot of things, including mental disorders and substance use disorders. So that allowed us to look at what happened first. And importantly, we had enough numbers to look at what was happening among people who were of a similar age at, uh, to the participants. And that allowed us to look at whether or not what people around your same age in your country were doing at a particular year in your life was related to your risk of using drugs. So let's start with the chicken and egg. Mm -hmm. What happened first, drug use or mental health problems? Well, in this study, we were specifically looking at um, drug use as the outcome. Um, and often mental disorders will begin earlier because they have a, a much lower onset, particularly disorders like anxiety disorders. So often it was the mental health problems. And then, and then you, just, just before we get on to the findings with what happens with a group of people that's around you, mm -hmm. how important are individual factors and in whether you go on to... Use drugs. Very important. So, and what sort of things are we talking about here? Um, so they include age and gender, education level, uh, mental disorders, as we mentioned before. But we were focusing... So if you've got depression or anxiety, you're more likely to take up drugs. Yeah. And it works yes, the other way as well. It does work the other way as well. Uh, but also what we were able to look at is what an individual's level of involvement with alcohol use was and whether or not that predicted whether or not they started using drugs and progressed into problematic use. And that was very strongly associated with increased risk. So if you started alcohol earlier, you were more likely to transition to other drugs? Yes. Illicit drugs. Illicit presumably. drugs. So to what extent? I mean, so, so did you have to be abusing alcohol or just trying it out? Well, we looked at everything. So we looked at, you know, if a person had uh, was using alcohol, if they had developed um, an alcohol use disorder, including dependence. At each of those steps along the way where an individual was, was each of those predictive of beginning drug use and transitioning to more um, in-depth levels of use, and all of them were. And is this what researchers are saying is the effect of changing the brain, that your, 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 your brain is starting to turn into in a kind of addictive pattern? Oh, that's, a, that's a... Too hard. That's a big controversy. So, so come, then, come then to... But you're starting to describe the pathway into um, you know, dysfunctional drug use. Yes. Tell me then about this effect of the people around you, this so, cohort effect. So what we found that even after adjusting for all of those individual level factors we just mentioned, so what you were doing in terms of alcohol use, your mental health and other demographics, the pr prevalence of uh, drug use and the prevalence of alcohol use within the group of people who was of a similar age to you by that particular year predicted increased risks of you starting drug use. So increased risks of use or increased risks of certain kinds of drugs? Because we are in the middle of an ICE problem, a methamphetamine problem at the moment. So there's a cohort of people using methamphetamine. So is it just a question of your drug of choice, that if you go back long enough, it's alcohol, then it progresses to cannabis, and then another cohort, it's amphetamine? Or is it that people are, are actually 
using drugs in a dysfunctional way? So we were we specifically were looking at starting use, and I think the important thing is that um, levels of use vary over time. They vary across country, um, and th- what we found is that this clearly reflects the fact that substance use is a very socially driven phenomenon, um, and so whichever drug is more common. Um, to be used will probably be the one that is more likely to be um, uptake uh, by someone. And is this what they call a network effect, where something that's happening six degrees of separation from you can actually affect you? Or is it much more direct in terms of peer group, what you're watching on television and so on? Is it as simple as that? Well, the the unique thing about this study is it it is tending towards that network effect because we weren't looking at what an individual's peers were doing. It was uh, people of their age. So they could be living on the other uh, other side of the country. And just to explain this network effect, they've shown that, for example, if somebody six degrees of separation from you is smoking, you are actually more likely to smoke. If they're putting on weight, you're more likely to put on weight. And if they're losing weight, you're more likely to lose weight. So this, so that you're showing quite a, a potent effect at a population level. Yep. What, do you, what do you do with that kind of information? Well, it's a bit tricky, other than... Well, apart from getting a publication in a good journal. <laughs> Um, well, I guess, you know, what we found was that the effect really was around beginning use. Once someone started using drugs, whether or not they became uh, dependent on drugs was not related to what their peer group were doing in terms of levels of drug use, which suggests that getting in, into trouble with drugs says more about the individual than what their peers are doing. Um, but what it also suggests is that if you're thinking about reducing that peer effect what you want to do is prevent the onset of drug use for an individual and their peers, and that's where it gets complicated. Indeed, because that's about access and availability? It's about access and availability, um, and when you're talking about um, prevention of drug use, we don't have many of the levers, the policy levers that we have for alcohol. Um, because they're illicit. Because they're illicit. So you can't use, for, for drugs anyway, you know, levers like how much does alcohol cost, um, the taxation, um, minimum, minimum age of drinking and those kinds of things. And what we really need to, to do, I think, and this is a, a general issue um, in the drug and alcohol field, is think more creatively about how to prevent the onset of drug use. Um, would you be worried if you were Canadian, given there's something, something like a 13 or 15% increase in cannabis use over the last five months since they legalised? Look, it's going to be fascinating to see what happens because I think we're going to be seeing some potentially some significant changes in terms of what's happening there in Canada. So you've described the pathway in. Is there a, netway, a network effect on the pathway out of drug use? There is. So just as for starting drug use, um, the higher the levels of use in your peer group, if you had developed a problem, you are more likely to also remit from having problems. Again, suggesting that, um, that having gone into drug use, it said less about you that you developed a problem and it was being affected by that network effect. So I'm not sure. So, so in other words, if there's a cohort effect, if there's a group effect that more people are coming out of drugs, you're more likely to do that. So in other words... I'm not sure I fully understand. So um, really what the way that we interpreted it was um, that the increased rate of remission, the higher um, the levels of drug use or alcohol use in your cohort, uh, suggested that you were less prone internally to, to having a disorder and to staying with a substance use disorder. So really to conquer this, we've got to conquer mass effects in terms of drug use. We do. Louisa, thanks. Thank you. Professor Lisa Degenhart is at the National Drug and Alcohol Research Centre at the University of New South Wales.
Now, I love stories of accidental findings. There have been many, from penicillin to Viagra and beyond. Sildenafil, that's Viagra, was just a heart drug until they noticed it helped erectile dysfunction. Now it seems that another heart drug, this time one that stops the platelets in your blood from starting the clotting process, may have an unexpected effect as an antibiotic. This follows the observation that people on the drug Ticagrelor seem to have a lower risk of dying of infection. It also seems to help people who have pneumonia. At the moment, Ticagrelor is used to prevent thrombosis, clotting, when people have had cardiac stents or bypass surgery or are experiencing a threatened heart attack. But according to Belgian research, Ticagrelor may be even more effective at killing certain bacteria than one of the most powerful and indeed toxic antibiotics currently available. And what's more, it seems to be specific to Ticagrelor and nothing to do with its effects on platelets. On the line from Belgium is Patrizio Lanzotti, who is a professor of cardiology at the University of Liège, and I spoke to him just before we went to air. We did several in vitro studies uh, trying to understand if Ticagrelor or any metabolite can have antibacterial activity. Just to decode that for the audience, an in vitro study is in the test tube effectively. And when you're talking about metabolites is that when you absorb a drug, the body often turns it into another drug, which is the drug that's actually most effective. Yeah, and we use what is called disk diffusion assay. And effectively, and, uh, just so that first, people, people have got a mental image of this, you've got a circular dish on which you're growing a, a germ, a bacterium, and you drop in, it's normally an antibiotic, you drop in to see what the kill effect is in a halo around the drug. Yeah. And when you did that, what did you find? First thing, we did this series of in vitro studies with staphylococcus, and we observed that staphylococcus are killed very quickly, even more rapidly than a conventional antibiotic like vancomycin. It was a fantastic observation that we did. When we started, we started with uh, staphylococcus that are sensitive to any kind of penicillin-like drug. And we also say, okay, let us try now to uh, resist staphylococcus that are the huge healthcare problem. Such as MRSA. Yeah, MRSA. And with Takagalo, MRSA didn't grow, and that was exceptional. And again, it was even more active than vancomycin. So more so than one of the few antibiotics that's left when you've got resistant bacteria called vancomycin, which hurts your kidneys and is quite a toxic drug, it was more effective than vancomycin. That's absolutely true. And also what we observed, something very interesting, was the fact that Ticagrelo can increase the bactericidal activity of other drugs like rifampin or ciprofloxacin, etc., or vancomycin, meaning that you can add ticagrelor with other drugs, but at a lower dosage to get the same effectiveness. And that's very important in practice. And is it just staphylococcus, or what about other bacteria as well? No, we also observe this against enterococcus. Enterococcus are often... Uh, resistance to uh, conventional antibiotics. These are bugs in your bowel. Yeah, yeah. And uh, enterococcus, they are sometimes very aggressive. For instance, developing infective endocarditis, so an infection at the level of the valve in the heart. This is a deadly disease. It's about 20-40% mortality rate. So enterococcus are very aggressive. And we observed that Pacagrelo was very active against enterococcus and even the resistant strain. And have you tried this in animals? Yeah, we did this in mice and Takagrelo 
at the dosage that is almost similar to what you get in human beings, we observe a significant decrease in the amount of infection in the mouth. This sounds almost too good to be true. When you look at people who are on ticragrelor because they've got a stent in or they've had a bypass or they've had a heart attack, have you seen any resistant bacteria? Because every antibiotic known to humankind has got resistant bacteria developed to it. Have you found resistance to ticagrelor in the, res- in the experiments so far? Because you've got millions of people around the world who are taking ticagrelor every day of their lives. Yeah, that was my main concern when we observed this, that we conducted a study trying to see if there was any resistance induced by ticagrelor. And in fact, there isn't, as compared to the other drugs. And that's of major importance for healthcare. Two questions. One is, is this a new class of antibiotic? And how can you say that if you don't know how it works? We don't know yet exactly how it works, but when we look at the mechanisms that are totally different from the antiplatelet activity, and when we look at some experiments that we perform, it looks like this is a new mechanism, meaning if you have a new mechanism, you have a new class of drugs. So, and maybe from that you can derive really new antibiotics. And what would it take for ticagrelor to be approved as an antibiotic? Uh, we cannot because we would need to administer high dosage of ticagrelor with a risk of uh, bleeding. So the idea would be to change the molecule or the metabolite in order to get the antibiotic property without the, the antiplatelet Yeah. Exciting stuff. Look, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Patrizio Lancelotti is Professor of Cardiology at the University of Liège in Belgium. I'm Norman Swan. This has been The Health Report. See you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.